Welcome to Redemption Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption Hill, go to redemptionshill.com. Luke chapter 2, 1 through 20. In those days, a decree went out from uh, Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor over of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, Galilee from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the house and the lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to, to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for him in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over the flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people for unto you is born this day. This day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with an angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those who, with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made, uh, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds had told them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart, and the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we pray that you would draw near to us through uh, your word, that we would see uh, the beauty of what unfolds here, that the goal uh, of Luke, inspired by the Spirit and the breathed out word of God, would, would happen in us, that our faith would be fortified and strengthened and galvanized in you, God, that we would see the beauty of a rescue mission for us, and that our affections would be stirred because of the beautiful things that you have done. We pray that in your name be glorified today. So uh, one of the interesting things about people is that we're often resistant to, to change, especially when there's change concerning uh, things or rhythms that we have to uh, maybe uh, adopt or, or alter or rhythms that, that, that cause some work for us that we didn't decide to take on for ourselves. Now, when this happens, generally, you don't have to look very far to see an adult throwing a full child temper tantrum, and maybe they'll kind of try and hide that temper tantrum with words or uh, the the language of debate, but still underneath of it is the reality that we don't like to be told what to do, especially if being told what to do causes us to have to do work that we didn't decide we wanted to do on our own. Amen. Yeah, we know what that's like. I don't want to do that. Don't tell me what to do. If you're not sure of where to look in culture for maybe a specific example of this, of where it's evident, I offer to you the decade-long debate over roll carts in Columbia, Missouri. If you've lived here for any amount of time, you're familiar with this. Since the Stone Ages, we've been putting out individual trash bags one at a time at our curb to create our own individual trash dump every single week. And then we hope a man will come and take said trash dump one at a time and throw them into a truck to dispose 
of them. In this process, we hope a dog doesn't rip apart the trash because we normally put that out the night before. Please don't let a dog get into this. And then don't let that stuff get airmailed into my neighbor's yard because I really don't want to go pick up all that stuff out of their yard. And we try and ignore the fact that we help the whole city look like a dump once a week. We put our junk out in front of our house. And, and yet throughout all of that, what we also learn is a whole lot of people evidently are emotionally tied to this process. They love it. Uh, then a person came up with the idea of putting all of these trash bags in a well-designed cart, kind of like the cart that all of us already had in our garage, but a little bit different. Uh, there'd be different sizes available depending on how much trash that you had, and then a well-designed truck would come and get this cart and, and chuck the, the contents inside of the, the truck, and it would take it away. The poor trash guy didn't have to pick up all of your individual bags, hoping that you didn't load it like a fool and it explodes on him. Like he'd get to throw it in there and get to kind of go away. Dogs wouldn't destroy your pile of trash. The city wouldn't look just kind of, you know, eh, when, when there's trash everywhere. It seemed like a slam dunk for all parties involved, like a win-win. Now you just had to wheel this card out once a week, and the guy takes it, and, and then it's done. No more stress, just a better plan, a better mousetrap, and yet that seemed uh, to be quite difficult. It seemed like it was a no-brainer, but many, many, many people lost their minds over this development because apparently they didn't like the work of taking a cart to the end of the, the drive. They felt like wheeling out this well-built cart was too much to ask. They'd rather take one thing out at a time. They'd rather uh, just kind of keep praying that dogs didn't destroy the trash. They would rather do things the way that they were doing rather than this other way because they didn't decide to do it. Then fast forward to now. We're on the cusp of modernity. <laughs> we're about to be able to use these carts, and some people are still just really upset about it. I don't I don't know why, Lord help them, but what, if it's you, sorry. Uh, what I want you to consider is if making everyone use a roll cart, why did I do all this, right? One, because I think it's funny, but two, if making people use a roll cart caused that much of a fuss, how much bigger of a deal is what we see at the front side of this text in Luke? How big of a deal is the, the reality that everyone is forced to go leave where they're at and go register from the top down. Everyone has to go do it. That's what we see in the opening of this text. This registration, you have to think of a non-optional census. I guess you have an option to not do it, but then you also pick up the option to die because they will kill you for not doing it. But in a census, you, you don't take a phone call back then in this type of registration. You don't have a person knock on your door. Uh, you don't fill out something and mail it back. You, you, there's no internet uh, form to complete for the census you have to go to your place of birth. Every man had to go wherever they were born to be registered. So I was born in San Antonio, Texas. That would mean I would have to get up, take my boys, and go to Texas to go be registered. This is the kind of thing that was required at that time. Now, if being forced to wheel a trash cart caused people to be that upset, how much more do you think this mandatory pilgrimage would have kind of upset the apple cart? You want me to do what? You want me to go where? I don't have a car. I'm not taking a plane, right? This, this is pre all of that. You, you want me to go do all of that. This is the moment that, that we kind of see in, in the text. And we kind of read past that. Oh, there was a registration. Okay, neat. But we don't understand kind of the tension that was going on in the, uh, the time there. So think for a moment about the type of power and control involved in this moment. All it took was a word from the emperor. I want you to go be registered. And people from thousands of miles all of a sudden got up and they were set into motion to go register. There's no vote. There's no veto. 
There's no pushback. There's no, I just want to kind of feel out. Like there, there was no decade like the roll carts. It was just, you're going to do this now, period. Right? Just complete perceived dominion over the known world. This is just what happened under the reign and rule of a man named Caesar Augustus. And, and that's the thread that we want to kind of pull on a little bit this morning is how this man with perceived power and perceived sovereign control was going to, unbeknownst to himself, uh, have a challenger. And he thinks in his flex of his power that he is dominating more and he's actually making room for the better king than himself. And he has no idea what he's doing. As we wade through this text, I'll just tell you ahead of time, we preach this exact text in Advent, um, specifically looking over the discourse of the shepherds and the, the angels where, where Christ's birth was just declared as good news of great joy. Right, So that is in the joy Advent message. We dug into how Christ arriving would change everything, how creation would be forever altered, the beauty and the glory of God's plan to save what was lost. So we did all that already. So this week we're going to focus just exclusively on verses 1 through 7. Uh, Clayton and me had, had kind of talked and, and, and joked around. We're like, man, it would have been really nice if we could have like tied this in to, to, to Christmas. You're like, yeah, maybe next time we do Luke. Like, so in... When we're 24 years old, maybe we'll, maybe we'll do it then. But we, we didn't get that done, so we're just going to look at verses 1 through 7. And I think it does offer us, even though we didn't line it up with Advent, I think it offers us something interesting, digging into the incarnation or the birth of Jesus outside of Christmas and the rhythms of Christmas and the focuses of Christmas almost offers us a different lens or perspective. So I don't want to tell you that we're trying to recreate the incarnation. It doesn't need a, a, a PR in, invention. We're not trying to take a new hip look at uh, Jesus's birth. We more want to say, hey, when we look at it this way, uh, it, it maybe lets us see some things we wouldn't normally. And the big ideas that we want to look into today are what we'll call the, the paradoxes of the incarnation. There's two paradoxes. The paradox between the power of Caesar and that of God and the paradox between the greeting Jesus deserved and the one that he actually received. Again, these are the things that we may actually miss if we're looking around the actual Christmas season into this text. So though, though the lens of the angle may be a little bit different, the hopes are still the same with all of our, our messages that King Jesus would be glorified, that you would see him more as king and God more as father, that the point of the book to understand there was a rescue mission for those who are lost, which I am included in one of those and so are you, this is what is weaved into this story and that we would have this kind of awe that Jesus did all of this and God moved in sovereign control the pieces of history so that he could save people like you and me. So the lens may be a little, maybe we're going to shift a little bit this way, but we, we still want to make a lot of the king and see the beauty of God's plan. So the details here in the text, as we begin to open them up, they matter. We read that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, but we should know that Caesar Augustus isn't an actual name. It's not like John Smith. Caesar Augustus is actually the title given to a man named Octavian. Uh, Caesar was the position that he held. Think kind of like their president. Caesar was a position, while Augustus is actually a description given to him. So Octavian was the great nephew of, of one you've probably heard of, Julius Caesar, and Octavian rose to power by defeating Antony and Cleopatra. He was a genius when it came to war, and he was absolutely ruthless at crushing anyone who came against him. This is how he rose to power. 
Caesar Augustus was such a force that under him, they, they kind of touted 40 years of peace. But when you look underneath of it, it wasn't actually 40 years of peace. He had just so brutally crushed everyone who came against him that no one could raise enough power to challenge him. So, you, so Rome just kind of stood triumphant over anyone for 40 years. So it's not that he was so good at brokering peace, like, look what I got, 40 years of peace. He was that brutal that, that no one could really make a challenge to them for 40 years. Because of this rule over uh, the land, Octavian was the first Caesar to be called Augustus. The Roman Senate voted uh, to give him this title. And, and Augustus means, as a description, it means holy and revered. And if you're thinking about that title, holy and revered, up to that point, that title had been reserved only to the gods, to pagan gods, and the Israelites used that term for the God of Israel, the, the, the God, the Father. So when you hear all of a sudden, hey, you're going to call this guy the Holy Caesar, they're like, whoa, I don't call anyone holy but God. There was all of a sudden a tension that was being raised here in the, the moment when you see uh, that under this guy's rule, culture was shifting to where men were being elevated to the station of God, and you were going to need to adopt them as your God and kind of follow them in some ways as your God. So Rome, they didn't really care about other cultures' religions that they kind of overtook the people. As long as the people would render Caesar, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, which is everything, the rulers wanted complete dominion and control. Everything you had, when they say jump, you say how high, they, they get whatever they want, and you're supposed to kind of worship them in this type of God-like form. Some of the providences or the, the kind of cities around, they actually turned Caesar Augustus's birthday into New Year's, and they called him the savior of the land. Can you feel the tension that's growing? Whoa, whoa, whoa. you're calling him God? You want me to call him God? Man, I, I, I don't know about that. Some men even comforted themselves when Caesar Augustus later died. It, it was told that many men said, hey, don't you know that gods don't die? He's just disappeared, he'll come back. It, it wasn't just a, hey, you're a great Caesar. It's I see you as God and I come to you for all that I need and I worship you for what I want and I get my protection from you. This elevation was happening at the moment. This tangible power over the known world is why Caesar Augustus makes the decree about the registration and people immediately move. There's no challenge to it. And, and again, the registration wasn't to get like cultural information. This wasn't about demographics. He wasn't trying to find age, sex, religion, or voting patterns. Registrations were done so that taxes could be levied. So in essence, you couldn't tax what wasn't registered. So to update your registration is to update your payable accounts. Oh, you've had a couple more boys? Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. And call me Augustus while you're at it, holy. Right? He's trying to get more money. So Caesar Augustus was already being worshipped like God, feared by his enemies, and now he's kind of tightening his, his, his stranglehold on the lands by increasing the money that he had coming in to make his power even stronger to make sure that no one could overthrow him. So a man with incredible power gives a non-optional decree, and this is why Joseph, from a little no-name town in the middle of nowhere, off just way out in the sticks, even he has to take his young expecting bride who is in their full, her, her, her final term of pregnancy, she's full term, to go on a hundred mile journey, no car. 
Right? If you've been prego before or had a prego wife before, how do you think that sits? Oh, babe, we're going to need to travel 100 miles. The good news, you can ride a donkey for a little bit of it, but you're going to have to walk for probably most of it so it doesn't die. Like, that's probably not a thing that you're kind of looking forward to in that moment, traveling in the dust and the cold, traveling along the roads, now understanding that thieves are going to be hanging out in the distance on roads to, to mug people and rob them. Imagine every step that you take on this, I'm full term, I should just be like home and like putting my feet up, I got to pee every three minutes, and like you're, you're in that time and you got to travel 100 miles, I would imagine every step you take is, I don't want to do this, I don't want to do this. I can't believe I'm doing this. This is not what I want. Mary's moving away from her mom. Like if you had a baby, did you want your mom somewhere around? Oh, you lose your comfort. You lose your, your family. You, you just need to, to go. And then we understand as we kind of pull all of these pieces together, the flex by Caesar Augustus, unbeknownst to him, was actually God. It was God taking Caesar's pawns and moving them to checkmate, one theologian said, so that the real Savior would stand alone as king of kings. You see, all along, Jesus was, was prophesied of coming and that the Savior king would be born of David, which means to be born of the line of David. The Roman registration that required every male to go to their ancestral home was exactly what needed to happen to qualify Jesus to be the Savior born in Bethlehem the city of David. You getting this? The emperor's flexing. I'm going I'm to tighten my control over all of you. And God's going, look what I'm doing. David Godding said this, for Augustus, the taking of the census was one of the ways that he employed to get control over the various parts of his empire. But, and here's the irony of the thing. In the process, as he thought of tightening his grip on his huge empire, he so organized things that Jesus, son of Mary, Son of David, son of God, destined to sit on the throne of Israel and the throne of the world, was born in the city of David, his royal ancestor. What at first appeared to be a great show of Caesar's power, his flex, actually was the supreme sovereignty of God to move all things around to accomplish his purposes. Even Caesar's decree, he had no idea, was a part of God's divine plan. God rules all things for his glory, even when people don't know it even when situations are hard. So here's something to maybe think about. This doesn't apply just to great events of salvation in history, though. This applies to our everyday lives. God is working out his will for his glory and for our good. He will get his glory in the end, no matter what. Earthly powers cannot change that. It doesn't matter how crazy the world is. It cannot change that. But here, here's another thing that's comforting to my heart this week. My mistakes and my stupidity don't change that either. I cannot, like, out-dumb thing God's will. He will do what he wants. This is incredibly encouraging when you look at your weakness with honest eyes. I know myself. If I could mess it up, I would. And yet God will get his glory and his plans will come to, to completion and he'll finish what he started. See, God does not require my perfection or my wisdom or my courage or my perfect obedience to accomplish his purpose in the world. And the same goes for you. Now, this doesn't give us a license not to care, but it does free you to understand that, hey, the will of God doesn't rest on your shoulders. That's really, really good news, especially when you're in a hard season. So we said in the opening series of Luke, or the opening message, that God does not lie. 
So we saw there was a, 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 a prophecy, the last one given in Malachi, and then there's 400 years of, of, of silence, and the people begin to worry, did God lie? Did he leave? Did he die? Like, like what happened? And then all of a sudden, the, the prophecy of John the Baptist and the prophecy of Jesus all of a sudden starts churning the words of God again to show he doesn't lie and he always follows through. But here's the thing that we can add to that. It's not just that he doesn't lie. Here's the beauty. And if you see him as father, this is good news. He also doesn't lose, ever. His plans won't be thwarted by anyone. See, see, here's here's the part. Like, I don't, I don't know if, I don't know if you're like this, or I, I, I remember being like Abel's age, and, and like kind of, I lived in some rough neighborhoods every once in a while, and I remember getting fights with other kids around, and, and this would what would be thrown out. Oh yeah, well my dad will whoop you. Right, that's the final line. Like, keep talking. I'll get my dad. Your dad doesn't lose. He can't lose. No one will overpower him. That little kid flex, my dad didn't come beat up any kid. God really will win in all situations. This is good. In our world, when things are upside down and crazy, many will declare the upside downness as proof that God's dead, but it may actually be proof that God's moving the pieces around to accomplish his will and his ways. God doesn't lose, ever. He will get his glory. And even when it looks like things are rough or you're suffering or things hurt, remember every step she's taking, she's probably going, I hate this. This isn't like a beautiful Instagram trip and she doesn't have like a pampered people around. This is a horrible trip that she's having to take. And still God is using it for his glory. This is really, really good news. Now notice this too. Luke doesn't say or open this section of Jesus' birth by saying, once upon a time in a land far, far away. Why does he not do that? Because this story isn't a story in the fiction category. It falls into the landscape of history, specifically when a man, Caesar Augustus, was ruling over with a heavy hand the whole land, and he had been elevated to the status of God over the entire land. It is right in that place that God the Father sends the real Savior, and in our minds, if, if I'm writing the story, if the, if the real dude comes, you're expecting like, he's going to have a big welcome, right? We're going to roll out the wagons. It's going to be amazing. People are going to be cheering like, here's the guy. He's going to come. He's going to overthrow it all. Like, but that's not what he gets though, is it? He gets a welcome that is not what he deserves at all. One theologian wrote, to understand what an indignity this is, we simply need to remember who Jesus was and is. Luke describes him as Mary's firstborn son, but he was more than just that. By the power of the Holy Spirit, the child in the virgin's womb was the very son of God. He was the firstborn of all creation with a unique status as God, the the one and only son. He was the alpha and omega, the beginning and the end. He was the creator of the universe, the maker of heaven and earth. He was the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the supreme ruler of all that lives. He was the second person of the Trinity, the only begotten son, the radiance of the father's glory. By his divine nature, he shared in the full perfection of the triune God, this baby born in Bethlehem, was the all-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful, and all-glorious Son of God. What kind of welcome does this king deserve? If all of those things are true, what does he deserve? He deserves that every man, woman, and child puts down everything that they have, and they sprint to him in praise and worship, and they bow before him acknowledging who he is. 
He deserves to have the rocks cry out and the cosmos dance and even the the stars burst forth in praise. And yet what kind of welcome does he actually receive? What kind of accommodations does he get when he arrives? The text says, in the time when Jesus was born, that they wrapped him in swaddling cloth in a manger because there was no room for him in the inn. The king who deserves all, like the world didn't have a place for him. Ah, go over there. The audacity of this scenario unfolding, is it's, it's almost too much to, to process. This wasn't a baby who would later in his 20s like morph into God. Right? This wasn't a God who, who tagged out his godness to become a man either. This was God being born into humanity, the God-man who would come to save the world and redeem it, reigning on the everlasting uh, throne of David and the kingdom that wouldn't be broken. And yet this Jesus, who was at this very moment the son of God, couldn't even get a room. He couldn't even get a place. There's no rolling out the red carpet for him because there's no carpet at all. See, many have argued over, okay, what was the situation and what did this look like? And and the essence is there's a small town and some of the homes had these extra spaces uh, that guests and traveling could come and, 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 and stay in, yet because of the travel for the registration, nobody had even one of those. Even those would have been super modest uh, at best, and he couldn't even get one of those because of the traffic going around. So the birthing process starts, and in that exact moment, they're like, we have to go somewhere. What do we do? The only thing that they could get happened to be this type of animal stable, this animal shelter. Whether it was like a, a, an actual uh, structure or some people have said, okay, it was actually a cave. Some people put their animals in there. Either way, it was, it was, it was a barn situation. It's where animals go is where Jesus was born. And, and not like shanty to chic, barn dominium. Oh, that's so cute. No, no, no. It was a, a nasty barn. This is where he was born. When the text says that he was wrapped in swaddling cloth and put in the, the manger, I think we kind of over-beautify this at times. Joseph would have taken parts of their clothing to the best that he could, ripped old pieces of clothing, and wrapped baby Jesus in it, because that's all he had. Right? There was no boon baby or, or really like cute like M.U. beanie, and there was no like monogram burp rag or, or baby's first onesie. There's nothing like that. He's in the middle of where animals are with tattered fabric wrapped around him because there was no room in the world or anywhere else perceivably for him. So Christ came into the world in complete humility amongst the smell of animals in a damp and cold room. The irony of this, the light of the world comes into the the world in this kind of just dark hole where animals would have been put. Do you see the paradox? It it doesn't make sense. Then if we look beyond just the accommodations and we look at what is the crowd, the Bible had been speaking of all through the Old Testament and, and, and it ramped up, especially in Malachi, for hundreds of years about this coming king. And yet when he entered, there wasn't even a person there to greet him. Thinking of this this week kind of messed with my head and my heart. Jesus had come, and yet everyone's life just kind of went on like it was just a normal day. 
Like nothing had changed. The king was there and yet nobody even kind of looked up from their life to, to, to see it. I get the picture of like a busy intersection with thousands of people who, who move by in, in a given hour and they're all going to their next spot or work or their hobby and they're moving and moving and moving and yet the greatest thing of all earth is right in the middle of them and, they, and they're not even looking at it because they're so enthralled with their own lives and their own habits and their own, their, their, their own thing. They, they, they don't even stop and witness or celebrate the glory of the king who's yet there. Yes, it's true that the text goes on to say, though the earth uh, wasn't kind of in on the party, the angels sure were. Thousands of angels are losing their minds in praise. They knew what the moment meant and they expressed it rightly. Uh, the Holy Spirit kind of used this text to press on my own heart this week in my office. It wasn't just that nobody kind of took notice that night when Christ was born, but there are countless days where we do the same now, right? Christ has come. Christ is available to commune with. Christ has sent his spirit to, to guide us and show us his face and his will and to teach us and to mold us. And yet how often do we ignore the, the king and we look down and we do our own thing and we kind of metaphorically, we leave the barn empty in our own life as well. It's easy to say, you know, man, Christ shouldn't have had to be pressed to the margins in his birth. Christ should have had a whole crowd like there cheering and worshiping outside while we kind of press him to the same margin of our life Monday through, well, just every day. We leave his glory unworshipped far more than we want to admit. Friends, if the proper awe was struck upon us, his glory is deserving of worship all the time. And how often it goes from hour to day to week to month and we're just so adamant to do our own thing that none of the worship that is, that is deserved to him is laid at his feet. The king came in obscurity and indignity and pain and rejection and often we push him back there as we ignore him in indifference. A theologian wrote, Christ came amongst us and we pushed him in an outhouse and we've done our best to keep him there ever since. So the question maybe shouldn't be, what welcome would I have given to Jesus if I were in Bethlehem in that day? The question is now, what welcome do I give him now in my life? Is there room for him? I've heard people say, is there room at the end? You're like, oh, okay, what are you talking about? Is there room for, for Christ in your, your heart currently or in the season that you're in? Is the question that this begs, I think. Is there room for Christ in your schedule and your routine and your ambitions? And maybe you're kind of like this. There's room for him in my morality. Just don't touch my desires. Is there room for him in what you desire? Is there room in your affections or your feelings? Is there room in your thoughts? Is there room in your worldview? Does, does, does the king of king get anything to say about how you see the world that he actually created? Is there room in your home? In your free time, is there room when you wake up and when you go to sleep and at the dinner table and what you do? Is there room in what you're doing for the king or are you putting your head down and just kind of muscling through? Thank you for the salvation while I ignore you for however long I deem necessary. This isn't a question to put shame or guilt on us even though it might feel like it. This is meant to reinforce again that Christ has come to do what? To seek and save the lost. And that saving involves not only the sacrifice on a, on a cross, the, 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 the saving also involves the regular walking with him that forms us and it shores up our peace. 
and it changes who we are. And that, that necessitates, if that's true, that it's not just that you save me and I don't go to hell, but I walk with you and I lean into you and you're the source of my peace and my comfort. And I'm actually following you with my life because you said, hey, follow me. So I, I'm trying to, to, to follow you. If that's true, it necessitates maybe an honest look at our lives. Is there room for the King of Kings in the life that we're living at this given moment now? And if not, just in honest language, what do I need to do to change that? And you may be at the point like, hey, I don't want to change that. Fair enough, your decision to make. But often we, we don't really pay attention. And we need to pay attention to this, not because we'll get grounded or spanked or kicked out of the family, but because Christ the King isn't here to mess up our life. The central theme again of the word is he's here to mold us. Right, the term sanctification, we become more and more and more like him as our sin habits and the depths of our heart gets transformed by the king, which takes time and worship and look and gaze at him. The king has come. And he not only saves the people, but he makes them new. The hope for us is that we would receive this not with indifference, though. We would ask the Holy Spirit, hey, will you magnify the reality of Christ coming for me? It just kind of feels muted right now. My affections feel muted. My, my just, things feel muted. Would you, would, would you help just kind of magnify the beauty of him coming? Press into our hearts again the beauty of awe and worship and praise and gratitude because the king of kings came, ripped open the heavens and came down, put on flesh to save what is lost, of which I am one of those. I have no idea of how your rhythms are right now, but we're in the, the season of Lent, Right? Easter comes earlier this year, end of the month. In the season of Lent, leading towards Easter, making sure that there's room for him is probably a good idea for our hearts and our soul and maybe the most meaningful thing that you can do for your faith, leading up for what is kind of our kind of freak out Super Bowl, the reality that Christ is not dead, Easter. Here's what I see when I look at a large swath of people in general categories. Um, and I fall into one of these more often than I would like to, to say it. The first category is some are just too lazy to keep their eyes looking at Jesus in a meaningful way. Like, lazy, I don't know if I like that term. Well, it doesn't mean it's not real. What, what does it mean, though? It means that some are just too undisciplined to, to maintain re- regular rhythms of grace. And, and they prioritize what they call rest or recreation over the king, and yet they wonder why their faith feels melancholy and weak and God feels so distant all the time. And what does that do when you end up seeking your own rest in your own uh, kind of recreation outside of God over and over? It creates a self-fulfilling prophecy because you end up feeling more weak, so then you double down on the stuff and then you feel more weak and then it just kind of keeps going. And then the other category is some are just too busy to keep their eyes looking at Jesus in any meaningful way meaning they're so taken by their work or their production or their schedule or their plans or their 401k or you know, any of the stuff that they are going on that they so need to have their tasks done that they prioritize their own kingdom over the king of kings who actually owns their kingdom as well. And they also have a melancholy kind of weak faith that feels distant from God and wonder why it is. And then they double down back on their work and it leaves them more empty again. I think both of us, it's the older, younger brother and the prodigal son. Both of us can, or all of us can probably fit into one of those. And here's the surprise. Sometimes we can flip-flop which one we're in depending on the season. But this is often the reason why our gaze can be averted and then our faith feels weak. And then weird things, we get bitter and we get frustrated and God feels distant because of it. 
And so I want to throw this as I kind of press these categories out. I want to make it clear the irony over my life over the last month is here's what, what I've kind of seen. The gift of a, of a new space and a building that we've prayed for for years has been the primary thing that's fought against my communion with God. Isn't that, isn't that ironic? The, the thing that we wanted more than anything, I've struggled to balance doing a ton of work so that we can move in with slowing down my heart to look at the king. And that, that, that's not a great thing. And the best thing I can do is kind of repent of that and go, hey, a whole lot of work still has to get done, but you're gonna have to make better choices about when and how you look at the king. See, when things get heavy, as we begin to look at the king, what did Jesus do when things got heavy for him? He carved out more time with God, didn't he? As, as things ramped up before the crucifixion, people are like, where's Jesus? He's off praying again. Where's Jesus? He's spending time in solitude again. Where's Jesus? You know what I do when it gets busy? I cut that out because I got work to do. And the reality is Jesus shows us what we need to follow the king is actually to slow down and be smart enough to prioritize what is true over the immediacy of what you feel it needs to be done. So I kind of present the question as I opt in and go, hey, this kind of smacked me in the face. Is there room for Jesus in your life right now? Again, the Holy Spirit has pressed on me with that this week. See, the king has has come to save the lost. How easily is it that when he finds us, we, like that kind of goofy dog, get ourselves lost again. I've come to seek and save the lost. Thank you. And then we just kind of scurry off into our own thing again. And we walk out into the wilderness and lost us. Each season of life requires attention and the question, hey, am I following you right now? Am I giving you the welcome in my life and in my time and in my schedule and in my heart that you deserve right now? Is there room in my life for you? And a lot of times people are like, well, that sounds duty and that sounds religious. It's just the reality of our faith. We have to analyze, is there room for him? Because he's the one who feeds us. And if we're not being fed by him, something else will, and it will have an effect on our soul. So the question of, am I following him and is there room for him and is there a a deserved welcome for him in my life right now? It should be a regular question in our DNAs and our MCs and our personal time in the, uh, the, the, the word, not because we're gluttons for punishment and we just kind of like want to beat ourselves when we do bad. Just we know that King Jesus is the one who molds us. So we regularly ask, is he doing that right now or not? Unfortunately, we have this just crazy thing that I, I'm going to be really pumped when it's gone called spiritual amnesia where we draw near and then we fade away and then we draw near and then we forget. So we have to be adamant about the fight to push forward. In our world right now, what I'm off notes, uh, free uh, ability to apologize for this later. What I am very worried about is anything called discipline is called legalism in our world. I think it's actually just called a healthy faith. Sometimes we got to fight. And we don't fight and then we get mad at other people and our faith is horrible. So we've got to ask the question, hey, is there room right now? And is there not? And then deal accordingly with it. As we move into worship and song, the text calls us to remember that God doesn't lose. And he's working out his will and his ways. And let that come for you. The beauty of this first part, this first paradox, there's nothing for you to do. You just get to sit in the reality like nobody can whoop your dad. And he's going to do what he's going to do, and nobody can stop him. And the beauty is he will even finish the good work that he started in you when it feels like, man, i got so far to go. He'll finish it. It's in his power because he'll receive his glory. He'll never lose a child. He'll bring them all home. He'll finish what he started. Great news for us. And the other side, the king of kings deserves a welcome in our gaze. 
He's come to you and forward or for you, and he wants to comfort you and walk with you and mold you. The great joy that we get to behold is seeing him work in us and the brothers and sisters around us and press each other forward in him as we go. The paradox between the power of Caesar, fool didn't even know what he was doing, and the paradox between the welcome Jesus deserves and the one that we often give him. We'll take communion today as we kind of wrestle with those things. It's a perfect thing to come to the table again. When he asks, does, does Jesus get the, the, the welcome that he deserves? Here's the beauty. He welcomes you at the table, even if the answer of this week has been no. I've ignored him completely. You get to come back to the table and take the bread and dip it into the cup. And remember, it's always you and your work and not my perfection. It's what you've done on your cross and the blood over me that has saved me. Thank goodness, because I didn't do awesome this week. Or maybe you did do awesome. You've looked at him and your heart has been stirred and you're in a good spot. You get to come and take the bread. I'm so thankful. You just get to remember again what he has done. First Corinthians, man, you guys can come back up. Uh, 11 says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Guys, if we just time out for a second, remember is actually an active process. You don't remember on accident, you remember by remembering. Thankfully, the Holy Spirit meets us at the table and helps with that process. But in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we're gonna be able to come and, and take at any time during uh, the, the last songs, to be able to come to the table and take. You don't have to be a member here. Uh, we just ask that your faith be in uh, Jesus if you come and take, but may your heart be stirred and maybe you wrestle with the, the, the question, hey, has there been room for him in, in the last little bit? And then tell him what he already knows. If there hasn't been, hey, Father, hey, I kind of did it again. We help me? Here's, a, here's another thing. If you really want to be serious, maybe you tell someone who's in your missional community and say, hey, will you pray with me about this? Schedule's been a little crazy lately. I need some help. And then come to the table and see the beauty of him being faithful to meet you. Every time we walk away, the prodigal son comes out and meets you. Hey, come on. I love you. There's room. Come on. Here's the beauty of we get to take in. He deserves a huge welcome. And that he welcomes us when we're sinful and wayward. That's the best news we could get.